Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Basord, and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Joining us today is Dr. Rose McCabe, who's a senior lecturer in social psychiatry, based at the Unit for Social and Community Psychiatry at Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry, Queen Mary, University of London, United Kingdom. And Rose and the co-author Stefan Prieb have published an interesting editorial in the June edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry entitled Communication and Psychosis. It's good to talk, but how? So first of all, Rose, I want to ask you, why um, are you writing about communication, uh, communication schools as psychiatrists, particularly in the realm of, of dealing with psychotic patients? Why is this an important subject right now? Okay, well, there are three main reasons why we feel it's important to write about this now. The first reason is that we know that non-specific effects of treatment account for up to 60% of the variance in outcome across medical trials. And that means that that's often more than the effects of medication or other therapeutic interventions. So we've got a lot of therapeutic effects, if you like, to play with there. The second point really to make there is that non-specific effects are attributed largely to relationship factors. And then we know that quality of the therapeutic relationship influences the benefit a patient derives from treatment. And then the third point is that people with psychotic illness often find it particularly difficult to engage in services, and they may drop out of treatment and end up very unwell. So we feel that there is particular reason for looking at communication with psychotic patients in terms of trying to improve the communication with mental health professionals and improving the chances of them receiving the treatment they need. Your paper then goes on to discuss some of the problems with studying communication. Um, could you outline some of those difficulties? Sure. The um, main difficulty with communication is that, um, as we know from our own everyday lives, it's a highly complex process. So what we generally need to do as a, as a minimum is video recording sessions. And this is maybe easier in a clinic setting, for example, when people come to outpatient clinics. But it's particularly difficult if you consider that people with psychotic illness may be seen in their homes, in hospital, in outpatient clinics, even in cafes with their key workers. So it's practically difficult to follow people around in terms of collecting the, the recordings. And then the next step is actually analyzing the recordings. So we often use a very um, detailed method called conversation analysis, which looks at um, what people do rather than what they say they do. And we transcribe everything from um, the verbal content of the conversation to nonverbal information like gaze, overlapping talk, pauses, intents of seconds, intonation, etc., etc. So it's highly detailed and labor-intensive. What are the kind of findings that have emerged from that literature that might assist doctors with better communication? We've been focusing, as you've mentioned, on psychotic patients. And in our studies of routine consultations between people with psychotic illness and their psychiatrists, a particular problem we found was that patients repeatedly attempt to talk about the content and the emotional consequences of their kind of particularly hallucinations and delusions. And the psychiatrists found it very difficult to respond to patients' concerns about these experiences, leaving both the patients and the doctors very uncomfortable. So we're looking at ways in which, um, at the moment, psychiatrists aren't trained in dealing with those particular symptoms. Um, so, for example, if a patient says, why don't people believe me when I say I'm God? 
It's quite a difficult question to answer. So we're looking at ways of responding to that in a way that responds to the patient's concerns and fears and distress. So part of that is giving information to the patient about what's happening to them and contextualizing it. And part of it is reassuring them about the emotional aspects of it, the distress and the fear. You also seem to argue in the editorial that it's not entirely clear what would be considered good communication in that situation. You say there are a number of different... um, uh, approaches and they would they would uh, focus on different aspects of communication in that situation. You're absolutely right. I think one of the points that we make is that even in the social sciences, there's no definitive model of good communication. So in in healthcare communication, we talk about patient centeredness and shared decision making. And while those concepts are highly appealing and intuitive, um, I think often we don't know in practice what they actually mean. So at the moment, we're looking at what is it about what kind of communication processes influence um, patient outcomes? So we're just completing a big multi-center study and um, analyzing the results at the moment. But there is a problem in terms of a lot of doctor-patient research looks at the doctor only and not at what the doctor and the patient do together. So, for example, how the doctor is responding to patients' utterances. So we're looking at how people establish an understanding on a turn-by-turn level, if you like, in conversation. So it's about um, linking this with what the state of the art is in the social sciences and applying it to what we know in healthcare and trying to identify what the key processes are. And we, at the moment, we think that they are about um, this looking at co- communication in a very micro level, so looking at it on a turn-by-turn basis and looking at responsivity to patients' concerns and needs. So it's not just saying, well, it's important to give information and it's important to convey emotion and it's important to um, elicit the patient's concerns. It's how that's done. And it's done at the right time, in the right place, in the right manner in the consultation. But it does seem to be a major problem that the field can't decide what the goal of communication is, in, in the sense that it can't decide on what good communication is. I suppose one of the problems is that when two people get together, they could have various goals, and uh, those goal, goals may not be shared by, by others, by other patients or other doctors. So one of the problems is doing research where each individual act of communication, it's difficult to compare it with other acts of communication. Absolutely, and I think you're kind of you're touching on the kind of complexity of the subject, but what we're, I mean, putting and setting aside those kind of the various kind of complicating factors and the fact that one style won't fit all, et cetera, and the people have different goals. What we're looking at is how do you sit down with two people sit down, a doctor and a patient, and even if they don't have shared goals, how do you increase sensitivity to, let's say, for example, disagreement on the part of the patient? And how do you, maybe even about that exposing that disagreement and talking explicitly about uncertainty, but there does seem to be um, an issue about um, perhaps being sensitive to where the patient is at at that particular point in time and working with that. So it's about the, um, the, the, the type of communication that you use to do that, and that's what we're looking at trying to pin down and specify. 
There are a couple of very interesting quotes from Carl Jaspers uh, in your paper. And the first one is uh, to, to tap on the issue of whether actually it's almost an impossible problem solving the problem of communicating with people suffering from psychosis. You say in the paper that Jaspers discussed the challenge of communicating with another person whose experience is so remote from the normal realm to render it non-understandable. However, in order to establish non-understandability, the clinician first has to try to understand the patient's experiences, which requires communication about symptoms, emotions, and their meaning for the patient. Clinicians themselves may need to, need to be supported in their response to patients' disturbing experiences. Could you say a bit about that very interesting comment? Yes, absolutely. I think that Jasper has been a very influential um, psychiatrist in this field, and his view about trying to ex- trying to communicate with somebody whose experience is so remote from the normal realm as to make it non-understandable has influenced, if you like, clinical and psychiatric practice towards people with psychosis. So there's almost a view of, well, you don't you don't encourage the patient to open up about these things because you're just colluding with them and you're making matters work. Ma- sorry, you're making matters worse for them. However. What we found in our, in our consultations was that the more that you avoid talking about these things, the more it's likely to end up in a kind of a confrontational approach. So, for example, a patient will start off saying that they're feeling very afraid and they didn't want to come to the clinic because they feel that people are against them because he, the patient himself feels that he's God and he's uncomfortable and unsafe. And the, the, this is avoided in initial stages of the consultations. And then later on in the consultation, it becomes a confrontation about... Why don't people believe me when I say I'm God? So what we found was that when there's initial avoidance about these matters, it becomes confrontational and it becomes an issue of belief about why the patient is actually there. And therefore, as you can imagine, a problem in terms of agreeing about the nature of the problem and agreeing about what might be appropriate treatment for them. So we're, we're interested in this idea that it's not under, it may not be understandable, but there must be a way of engaging with the person about aspects of their experience which are distressing and worrying for them. So I think there is a problem in terms of discussing the reality of the, of the experience, and that is a problem. But there are other aspects which also can be discussed, which don't need to focus on the reality of the experience. And the second point to make there, which is the one that you mentioned, is that clinicians may need to be supported. And clinicians often hear patients talking about, about very disturbing experiences, and they may have emotional re- reactions to those experiences as well. So. We're interested in the idea that clinicians may need kind of ongoing clinical supervision, if you like, if they are going to be communicating with patients about these things. So we're interested in clinicians' needs in this respect also. Towards the end of your editorial, um, you begin to talk about some possible interventions that might improve communication. One of them you mention is a simple communication checklist completed by patients before seeing their clinician. Could you talk us through some of the interventions that could improve communication between uh, clinician and patient? Yes, absolutely. There are. Um, let me start by saying that very few interventions have been tried in psychiatry, and. It's been neglected compared to other fields like primary care, general medicine, and oncology, for example. So the few interventions that have been tried in, in, in psychiatric practice are a simple checklist that people fill in before they go in to see their clinician. So they write down kind of what it is that they want to talk about. And then this is um, given to the clinician at the beginning of the consultation. So the clinician is kind of heightened 
and and um, is aware of what the patient wants to talk about in that particular consultation on that particular day. And um, that did result in improved communication and resulted in some treatment changes. We also um, did a European-wide study um, with uh, looking at structuring patient-clinician communication in the actual consultation. So we used a little handheld computer to um, systematically ask people what their um, what they what, how satisfied they were with different aspects of their lives at that particular on that particular occasion, and whether or not they um, had additional um, needs for care or different kind of help that they wanted to receive. And we found that that led to a better quality of life, fewer needs for care, and higher treatment satisfaction after one year. So we did find that a simple intervention could improve um, communication. And if we look at the evidence from outside psychiatry, um, it is clear that um, alerting clinicians to the patient's concerns and emotions is important. Also, giving information is important. And then lastly, changing clinicians' beliefs about the importance of communication is, has a key role to play. Your paper ends with a, an almost ironic comment about the possibility that it might be impossible to actually study this area at a fundamental level. You go with another quote from Jaspers. You say that Jaspers stated that the ultimate thing in the doctor-patient relationship is existential communication, which goes far beyond any therapy, that is, beyond anything that can be planned or methodically staged. Isn't that almost an argument against the whole thrust of your editorial, which is about the importance of scientifically studying communication? I think what we wanted to acknowledge there is that we we realize that we can never um, pin everything down in communication because it's it's so it's so complex in terms of the way it's work, way it works. But we do know that we can identify certain types of communication patterns which are linked to better patient outcomes. So although we may not be able to um, get the whole get the whole picture, we can get enough to make a difference to improving the benefit that somebody will derive from treatment. So improving their symptom burden, their quality of life, their social functioning, and all matter of other important clinical outcomes. Rose McCabe, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.